we are beginning a short sermon series this morning uh, called Kingdom Life. And if you've been attending CBC for any amount of time, those words hopefully sound kind of familiar. You've hopefully heard us talk about our, our discipleship definition or, or paradigm. I actually kind of hope that you're getting a little bit tired of hearing these words, that you're like, oh, they're going to talk about this again, because it is that important, and we want to emphasize it uh, as much as we can. But here's kind of what we believe. We believe that a disciple pursues kingdom life with God, under God, and for God. Uh, for us, this is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. This drives you know, what we do, what we teach, and ultimately how we want to help you to grow spiritually. And so, you know, this is kind of the beginning of the new ministry year, and so it's just a great time to kind of get on the same page and talk about uh, what this is all about. Uh, for some of you, this is maybe a little bit of a review of stuff we've talked about over the past few years, uh, but for some of you, I think this, this might be brand new. Uh, another reason why we're doing this series is it's uh, my sneaky way of getting Abe up on the pulpit in a couple weeks to talk about where he fits into all of this, and I'm really looking forward to that. But this series ultimately is about us as a church, kind of embracing this picture of discipleship. And so today what I want to do with our time is just kind of talk about really the first few words of this paradigm, this idea that a disciple pursues kingdom life. What does that mean? Uh, what is kingdom life, and how do we pursue it? Uh, so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. And this is, a, um, this is an important moment in Jesus' ministry. Uh, I think we reference this passage or these passages a lot because this is really where Jesus begins his ministry. He steps on the scene, and he kind of begins to reveal who he is and what he's about. So Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Uh, this past weekend, uh, I had an amazing experience. Uh, we, we, I had the opportunity to go on a uh, trip to Zion National Park with our small group, Stone Community Group. Uh, woo! Yeah. Go Stone! <laughs> um, but there are like eight, now nine families in that group. Five of us were able to go. Five of the families were able to go on the trip, and we had a great time, you know, hiking, exploring, swimming, eating, uh, just playing games, all that good stuff. And on our first day, we went on this uh, kind of decently moderate hike to something called the Emerald Pools, these, you know, little ponds and kind of little waterfalls. And uh, it wasn't too, too challenging, but it definitely wasn't an easy hike. And so since my kids are a little bit older, a little more experienced, I ended up on most of the hike up walking with one of the younger kids, a little girl named Lauren Tam. And she is three years old, not an experienced hiker, and so my, my main goal was just to keep her alive, basically. Because this girl, she is fearless. Like, she was booking it. She's, like, trudging through these giant mud 
puddles. She's stomping over rocks. I mean, she, like, she was ready to go. And so I'm like, I'm just trying to keep up with her. I'm holding her hand like, okay, stay on this side. Don't trip over those rocks. Don't slip in the mud. Don't fall off that cliff right there. Just, just stay with me. But every once in a while, as good of a hiker as she was, you know, she was three, and she would get tired. And so she would kind of look at me, and she'd be like, where are we going? Right? Like, like dude, what, what is this? What, why are we walking here? And so I would try to explain to her, like, okay, we're going to these emerald pools. It's like a pretty lake and waterfall. And, you know, she would kind of seem satisfied with that. But then a couple minutes later, she'd get tired. She'd look at me again and be like, where are we going? Like, what, again, what is this? And at the end of the day, I think that's a, a great question, right? Anytime you're hiking, that's probably one of the first questions you're going to ask. This tells me that she has a lot of hiking potential, right? Because we all understand that I think most of us aren't going to sign up for a hike. We're not going to go trudge through mud and climb uphill for an hour or more unless we know what the destination is. Even a three-year-old knows this, can sense this. And I think about this when I read Mark 1. Right? Jesus walks up to these guys, these ordinary men, and they're just having a normal day. Right? Like they're just they're fishing. They're doing what they do every day. They're at work. And some guy comes up to them and says, hey, follow me. And they just go. They leave their whole lives behind. They immediately start hiking with this dude to who knows where. And it kind of strikes me as, as, as a little bit strange. Uh, th there's something about this that doesn't quite add up, right? Because they, they never say to Jesus, where are we going? Like, what's the destination? Now, honestly, and truthfully, we're never going to fully know why they go. Uh, scripture doesn't tell us that, and so we don't want to jump to too many conclusions. You know, maybe they really understood this fishers of men metaphor. Maybe they, they wanted to do that. Maybe they were tired of fishing. Maybe they just wanted to go on an adventure. It's also very possible that Jesus, being Jesus, was just the kind of guy you follow. He was that magnetic. And we won't know all the details for sure. But I do think one of the things that we can miss in this story, and one of the things that helps us understand their response, is what happens in the previous verses. Jesus' call to follow doesn't happen in a vacuum. Because what we know is, is just moments or days or hours before that, he's walked into Galilee, and he proclaims before the masses, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. It's almost certain that Simon and Andrew had heard of this teacher who said these words, who had proclaimed that the kingdom of God was near. It's possible they were there when he said it. But what's important is that we recognize that when Jesus says, follow me, he's already revealed kind of a lot about where they were going. Because he's inviting them into this kingdom story. It's like a continuation of what he's already said. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Do you want to come? Do you want to follow me and be a part of what God is doing? And for Simon and Andrew, this had real meaning. The kingdom of God wasn't just a 
vague theological concept. It wasn't just a phrase they threw around when they wanted to sound extra spiritual. It meant something to them. They cared about this idea of the kingdom and the kingdom story. And so for us, this means that if we want to understand this invitation, if we want to understand this very basic call to follow Jesus, if we want to understand something really important about the nature of discipleship, we have to understand something about this kingdom story. We have to understand what did the disciples, what did the people of Israel, what did Jesus' contemporaries, what did they hear when they heard these words, the kingdom of God has drawn near? And to answer those questions, we're just going to really briefly look at two pictures of the kingdom from the Old Testament narrative. Uh, in the interest of time, we're just going to skim the surface of these pictures. We can't get into every detail, but I want to look at these two moments in Old Testament history uh, to gain some insight into this relationship between discipleship and the kingdom. So let's just start with the first picture, really simple, which we find in the opening pages of Scripture, and that is Eden. The kingdom story goes all the way back to creation. Now, I just want to say really quickly, we're going to be doing a Genesis series starting next month. I'm very excited about it. I don't want to spoil all of it in the next five minutes, and so I don't want to really get into all of this. We're going to explore the concept of the kingdom and creation uh, in that series. But the basic idea is pretty simple. The creation story is establishing this simple truth that God is king, right? God created everything. He's sovereign over sun and moon and stars and land and sea. He has authority over every living creature because he made them. That includes man and woman. And what we recognize as we read through Genesis 1 and 2 is that God's kingship isn't primarily about him, like, bossing people around. It's not him kind of sitting on a throne being waited on. Instead, God's kingdom really is about him using all of his power and authority to create a world of perfect good for us to experience. It's the world as it's supposed to be, expertly crafted, so that we could experience blessing and shalom, or, or wholeness, peace. And so the kingdom of God, you know, is basically the reign of God. The kingdom of God is where, where God is in charge. But because God is perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly gracious, to live under his reign is to experience perfect peace and joy. Uh, author Jeremy Treat describes the kingdom this way. The kingdom of God is the vision of the world reordered around the powerful love of God. I love that description. I think it kind of simplifies a complex idea that God's vision for the world is ultimately defined by his love, his goodness, his grace. I have this um, strangely vivid memory of elementary school. I think I was in like third grade. And, you know, we were having elections for school student council, right? We're voting for president of the school and vice president. And so each of the candidates, like in real life, they had to give a short speech explaining why, you know, we should vote for them. And this one student, Casey Rainier, he's a few years older than me, he got up and he gave this really, like, impactful speech. <laughs> I obviously remember it 30 years later. But he told us that if he were school president, 
the first thing he would do, the main thing he would do, was he was going to take all the water fountains at school and turn them, make them soda fountains. So instead of water, we'd be drinking Coke and Sprite and root beer. And, you know, I'm a dumb kid. You know, all of our friends were like, what? He can do that? And so Casey Rainier won school president in a landslide. And so that year, obviously, I learned an important lesson about politics and campaign promises and how that all works. But, you know, I, I thought of this because, right, like Casey is standing in front of all of us, and he's outlining his vision for our school. Right? He's saying, when I think about what I want for my peers, when I think about what would be good for Grove Center Elementary, this is it, right here, soda in the water fountains. But obviously, right, this vision is flawed in so many ways. For one thing, there's no way he could actually make that happen. I didn't know this at the time. Pretty hard for a sixth grader to get that kind of project done. But just as important, right, is his idea his vision of what good is, what would make a great school, is pretty limited, right? Soda fountains are a cool idea, but not really that helpful for the learning process. And so, you know, I'm not trying to knock Casey. He was a nice kid, but his vision said something about him. And one of the things that we cannot miss is that God's vision for life that we see in creation, when we read through Genesis 1 and 2, when we see the provision, when we see his love, his goodness, when we see the way everything is crafted so that we could thrive and be joyful and be blessed, we see what it means when God is king. We see what life looks like under a kingdom ruled over perfectly by our God. Now, just really quickly, there are several important elements to this world, and this kind of goes along with our discipleship paradigm. We're going to talk about this more in the next couple weeks. But there are a couple things we see in this picture, right? Like we see life with God, okay? So relationship with him. In the garden, we see God loving us, pouring out his grace and blessing. He provides for us. He gives us a sense of identity. He even walks with us. We experience life under God. We see the perfect joy that happens when we obey his direction, when we live how he calls us to live. We're thri- we thrive and we're fruitful in that setting. Finally, we experience life for God as we find the purpose that he has for us. Right? We're created to be image bearers, to reflect his goodness, his blessing, his kingdom to the world around us. And so at the most basic level, Eden is a perfect experience of God's reign. And when God is king, everything is good. When God perfectly reigns over a people, over a place, there's blessing. Now we know, of course, that, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 isn't the end of the story. Genesis 3 happens, sin enters the world, and sin is basically us rebelling against God's kingship. We're saying, no, 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 I don't want to do it that way. If you remember from a series a couple years ago, we say, I want to wear the big crown. I want to be king. I want to be in control. And this disrupts this kingdom. And it brings all kinds of problems, right? There's a disruption of God's vision for life. So we look for relationships. We look for direction. We look for purpose all over. We don't find it. And life gets hard. This is what we see in Scripture. 
Now, this isn't the end of the kingdom story. And in fact, when you read scripture through this lens, you see that kind of this reclamation, this restoration of the kingdom is really kind of the driving force behind the biblical narrative. How do we get back to this perfect good? And that brings us to our second picture of the kingdom. This is probably what Simon and Andrew would have been most familiar with, and that's Israel. Now, the relationship between Israel and the kingdom is a little more complicated than, you know, what we see in two chapters in Genesis. But what we do see very clearly is that God is still committed to this kingdom project. He's still committed to reigning over his people. He's still committed to reordering the world around his powerful love. God hasn't given up on the kingdom. And in the story of Israel, we we see God beginning to show us what a restored kingdom might look like. He takes a special group of people, a chosen people, and he begins to recreate this idea of kingdom life in their community. Right? So in Israel, we see life with God. We see the emphasis on relationship. Things like the temple, the tabernacle, the whole system of sacrifice. It's all about bringing some kind of forgiveness or atonement for sin so that we could be in fellowship with God so we could worship him and know him. He wants Israel to see the joy of obedience. This is the purpose of the law. Again, not to boss them around, but to show them how to thrive and be fruitful. He gives them a purpose as a holy nation, a royal priesthood. He says, you've experienced my kingdom goodness through relationship, through the law. Now go share it, right? Go be a light to the nations. The story of Israel isn't as simple as Eden, But we see this same basic truth, right? When God is truly king, when God really reigns over a people, everything is good. But the more people rebel, the more people do things their own way, the harder life becomes. And that, too, is is part of Israel's story. They reject God's kingship. You know, Israel actually says, God, we don't want you to be king. We want our own king. This is as explicit as it gets. We want to be king over ourselves, and from that point on, everything kind of goes downhill. They experience loss, defeat, disappointment, and as the Old Testament comes to a close, we see this kind of like brokenness. We talked about the prophets a couple years ago, but because we also see this, this hope, right? The people are still hoping for this good, right? This blessing, this restoration and hope and peace that God had promised them. And so this is the context in which Jesus steps onto the scene in Mark chapter 1. It's in this world that Jesus proclaims this good news, this gospel, the kingdom of God is back. The kingdom of God has drawn near, repent, believe this good news, and come follow me into this kingdom story. And at the heart of Jesus' ministry, at the heart of his call to the disciples, is Jesus saying, I am about this. I am continuing this story that began in Genesis 1 and 2, that you know, began to be restored through Israel. God hasn't given up on it still, and that's why I'm here. God still wants to reign over his people. He still wants his children to experience the love and goodness and shalom of the kingdom. But what we see in Jesus is something completely new, a radical new solution 
to God's kingdom, to, to, to dealing with sin, Jesus gives us a brand new paradigm for the kingdom. Because on one hand, Jesus is the king, right? He is God made flesh. But what we also see is that he is the kingdom. In who he is, in what he does, we see God's reign at work. One of the really cool things, early church fathers would call Jesus the self-kingdom, right? Meaning that the kingdom of God, this life of peace and hope and forgiveness, was literally found in Jesus' person. So wherever he is, things are good. Wherever he goes, God's reign and blessing flows. Now I want to give you a very, very, very loose analogy for this. I want to be very clear, this is not a one-for-one comparison. But this reminds me a little bit of John Tawa. Now, I think most of you know John. I'm not saying John is exactly like Jesus, but John is just one of those people who, you know, everything is better when John is around, right? Like, John loves to laugh. He loves to eat, so there's always food when John is there. He tells great stories. He's just a naturally kind person. He treats people well, and I think just generally he makes everyone feel good, right? So if John is at an event, it's going to be better than if John wasn't there. If I hear John is going to be somewhere, I am more likely to want to go to that thing. If I was hanging out with a group of people and we were having a really intimate time and John walked in the door, like 99% of other people, I would have been like, oh, what are they doing here? But John walks in, it's like, oh, cool, John will make this better, John is kind of like this this living representative of like a party or or joy, right? John makes things good. Now again, just to be clear, there's a big difference between Jesus and John. (laughs) And, and, And Jesus didn't necessarily always make things a party, right? Like that's not what I'm saying. But wherever he went, the joy and life of the kingdom went with him. And this is something that we see throughout his ministry. And I want you to do something. I know you're probably going to forget, but try to remember. Write it down if you're taking notes. This week, if you have a moment, it won't take you long, read through the entirety of Mark 1 to 2. This is a a really cool section of Scripture, and uh, these are the early stages of Jesus' ministry. But the way I would describe these two chapters is this is a kingdom explosion. Right? What you're going to notice as you read through this is Jesus comes, and he's baptized, he calls his disciples, and then he immediately goes out and does like eight or nine amazing things. He heals a bunch of people, he heals lepers, he heals the sick and the lame, he goes out and he forgives sinners, he eats with sinners, he, he, he casts out demons. And, you know, if you look at each of these stories individually, they're all pretty cool. Right, like Jesus is really powerful. He has authority over sickness and death and and demons and all that good stuff. But when you read it all together, what you see is that this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes. This is what scholars call the inbreaking of the kingdom. Right, the kingdom of God is coming in the person of Jesus, and so wherever he goes. All this good kingdom stuff, it's just exploding into the world because he's there. Right? So wherever Jesus goes, there's this new experience of wholeness and forgiveness and peace and joy. 
And so the first two chapters of Mark are, are once again a picture of what happens when the kingdom of God is in action. And we see, you know, the same kind of things that we've been seeing throughout the story, right? Relationship, the, the, the value of obedience to Jesus' new ethic, the, the purpose that he has for us. So let's go back to Simon and Andrew for a second. First two disciples, you know, standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, holding their fishing nets, they couldn't possibly have understood that Jesus meant all of that. I, I don't think. I don't think they understood that Jesus was inviting them to walk with the king, that they were going to experience the kingdom of God literally in his purpose, that they were going to see the kingdom in action in ways they never would have dreamt possible. They couldn't have known that following him meant that they were going to be the ones who were going to continue this kingdom mission in a few years when Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven. But I think they did understand this. On the most basic level, they understood that God was doing something new and God was doing something good and that the kingdom of God in some way was happening right there in their town. That this thing that they had been waiting for, that they had been thinking about, this thing that they had been taught about in Genesis, that they had heard about with all these heroes of their faith, that somehow that was going to happen in this little town of Galilee. And for some reason, somehow, they had received an invitation to the party. For some reason, this man who was announcing the kingdom, who was bringing the kingdom, came to them and said, do you want to come? Do you want to be a part of what I'm doing? Do you want to experience the kingdom? I mean, this is like someone inviting you to something amazing, right? To go to the Super Bowl, even better to go to the Taylor Swift Eras Tour, right? right? Like, this is the best ticket in town. And you're getting offered front row seats. And so they left everything, right? They didn't hesitate. They followed Jesus. They pursued kingdom life. Because in spite of the uncertainty, in spite of everything they had to leave behind, what they knew was that the kingdom was good. And this is still the invitation of discipleship today. And I think sometimes we miss this. You know, we hear the word discipleship or, or, or spiritual growth or sanctification, whatever you want to call it. And it, it just feels like, I don't know, extra. Or maybe it feels like, like a burden, something that we have to do. Like we're saved and, you know, we receive forgiveness. And then there's this other thing that God wants us to do now that we're saved. And like, I know I'm supposed to. I know I should. But man, what I really would rather be doing is all this other stuff. So... I'll, I'll, I'll try some. But here's the thing we have to understand, is that discipleship is not an obligation. Discipleship is a gift. Right? Discipleship isn't the work we have to do now that we've received grace. Discipleship is the grace. Following Jesus into kingdom life, that's what it means to experience salvation. That's what it means to grab on what God wants to give us in saving us, in redeeming us, in giving us a new heart and a new life. 
God wants to be king over your life, not so that he can boss you around, not so that he can make your life harder and less fun, but because he wants to bless you. Because from the very beginning of creation, what he has wanted to do is bless you and show you the goodness of life with him, under him, and for him. And I think one of the important things about discipleship is, is recognizing that this is true. Right? When Jesus is king over a place, over a people, and over my life and my heart, there is good. There is good in relationship, obedience, and purpose. And this really is the starting point for this idea of pursuing kingdom life. Now, the reality is, as we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, and as we're going to talk about on and on and on for the next several years, there's very practical things that come with pursuing kingdom life, right? There are things that we're called to do that are not easy, that are, are challenging, that stretch us. It doesn't always seem like this is obviously going to be good for me in the way I expect it to be good. And on top of that, right, as we always talk about, there's a million other stories, a million other narratives that are important to us. And to pursue these other things, to pursue kingdom life, means leaving some of those things behind. And so the idea that kingdom life is good, it's not to say that it's easy or that it always comes natural. But that's why this, this understanding of discipleship as a gift is so important. Because as long as we believe that it's something we're supposed to do or something we should do or something we can do, if you know, we're just like feeling like being super spiritual, as long as we separate salvation and discipleship, man, it's, it's always going to be swimming upstream. But when we realize that discipleship is a gift, that discipleship following Jesus' obedience, this is the way we experience all that God wants to give us, that pursuit can become more natural. Not always easy, not always fun, but we begin to experience the goodness of it. It begin, begins to become a part of just how we think and how we live, and it's our natural response. Because we realize we're not doing something we don't want to do. We're saying yes to an invitation for something really good. And so this morning, uh, I think it's really fitting that we're going to take communion. Um, I know normally we take communion in between the first and the second song. I wanted to do it now because I think as we take communion today, there's, a, there's an important question that we can wrestle with is do I recognize this relationship between the cross and the kingdom? Right? We, we know that the cross is, is this ultimate picture of love and grace, that Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins, and he rose again so that you might have life. And part of understanding this is understanding that, that Jesus didn't just save us from all this bad stuff. He saved us for all this good stuff that we find as we pursue him, as we live the way he calls us to live. And the cross makes this possible. The cross unleashes kingdom power and love. It gives us the spirit so that we can do 
what we could never do on our own. Through the cross, God begins to reorder our lives according to his kingdom vision. And so when we take communion, of course we want to think about receiving all that Jesus has already given us. But we also want to consider how we can receive what he wants to continue to give us as we move forward, as we grow, as we pursue him. So at this time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Um, Just a reminder that this is a a time for you to receive prayer. Uh, I think any time we're trying to grow or we're trying to push through something that's hard, as we're looking ahead and thinking, how am I going to do this thing? How am I going to live this way? One of the best things you can do is simply ask for prayer. It doesn't have to be specific. It can just be, hey, I need prayer for this. Uh, And and you can receive prayer for anything. It doesn't have to be about uh, this sermon. But this morning, as we take the elements, I want to read a a different passage than the one we've typically been reading. And this comes from uh, Ephesians 2. And Paul is looking back. Paul is reflecting on the cross, the resurrection. He's thinking about what does it mean for me, what does it mean for us, the church, that Jesus died and rose again. So this is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So at this time, let's take the cracker. And remember that Jesus' body was broken, that he was put to death so that we could have life. Let's partake. And now we're going to uh, drink the juice and remember that Jesus poured out his blood for us so that God could pour out his love grace and goodness on us forever. Let's partake. As we worship, let's remember that we were saved by grace so that we could pursue this vision, this kingdom life that we were called to. Let's pray.